are looking at James, and I hope you have a chance to read through it. You could probably read it in one sitting, although it's not advised, uh, because James is a little bit scattered. And so as you read through James, read a section, pause, reflect, talk it up with others, see how you do, try and put it into practice, and then move on to the next section as we go through this, uh, this letter of James. James is interested in authentic faith. The whole New Testament is interested in authentic faith. I mean, Jesus was very big on authentic faith. But James in particular, he wants a faith that works in the real world. You get that real sense. There's not a lot of theory going on behind the scenes. It's much more practically oriented. This is a kind of Hebrew wisdom. It's not, it's not an exercise in philosophy. Wisdom is actually applied knowledge. And that's what James wants us to pay attention to. And that's why I call James the antidote to hypocrisy. If we're finding that hypocrisy is plaguing our lives or hypocrisy is plaguing our churches, then we need to turn again to James in order to get this message and have our faith challenged on that very, very practical level. We discovered last week that James most likely was the brother or actually half-brother, we'd say, of Jesus, which must have been difficult growing up in that household. I thought it was difficult growing up in a household with four older brothers. And every time I'd go to a class in school, they'd say, oh, you're Eric's brother. Oh, you're David's brother. And they'd have instant expectations of me. Thankfully, I was smarter than all of them. So I, no, I didn't. But it must have been difficult growing up in a household with Jesus as your brother. And so James and his other siblings didn't actually believe in Jesus at the beginning. They were not his biggest fans. And it says that right in the Bible, they did not believe in Jesus. But then there was a moment that we're told in Corinthians, Paul tells a story in 1 Corinthians 15, of after the resurrection of Jesus, he seems to make a special visit to James. And after that visit to James, everything changes. As it should, right? <laughs> I mean, if your brother whom you've lost and you watched die is now alive again, that might alter your perception of reality and what's possible. And so that's what happened to James. So then James goes on to become the leader, the leader in the Jerusalem church. And he's so well regarded, so well respected, he's also known as James the Just. That's the character that we're dealing with here as far as we understand. James also went on to become a martyr. He died for his faith. And this is where it gets a little bit gruesome as we think about this, but he wasn't killed in a normal way. He was actually, as far as we know from church historical documents, thrown off the high place of the temple. But that didn't kill him. And so they beat him with clubs. And while, and this is in the reports in the early uh, chapters of church history, while he was being beaten, he was praying on his knees, Father, forgive them. So you can see the transformation that happened to this character James, and why faith and authentic faith is so important to him. 
But speaking of his knees, this is another little tidbit of information that you won't find anywhere else. No, hopefully you find it in the actual histories of the church. But he was also known as Camel Knees. Apparently it's a nickname for James. You can call him Camel Knees because it is said that James was such a man of prayer that his knees had large and thick calluses on them, making them look like the knees of a camel. Not great for shorts weather, but it would indicate that James was a man of prayer. So he's a just man. He's a man of prayer, a man of authentic faith, a man who was a leader and a known leader in the church. And he writes this letter primarily to Jewish followers of Jesus who have now been scattered around the Mediterranean area and maybe even beyond. And he writes to encourage them to have a faith that works. Don't just be hearers of the word. We heard that today. Don't just listen, but put it into practice. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that's what we're challenged to do in James. So there's a couple of keys to reading James. If you've picked it up and you're attempting to read it, we're discussing this on Wednesday nights. How do we read this um, really well in such a way that it impacts our lives? We have to understand that James is not a letter like Paul's letters. If you pick up Paul's letters, there's sort of a trajectory of his logic. You can follow him through the way that he writes it out. But James is more of a collection of wisdom sayings. And so it's much more like the Proverbs. And so as you come to James, you might get a little frustrated trying to find how it's organized. Just let it happen. <laughs> Just read it and enjoy each collection of, of sayings and Proverbs. It's in the tradition of the Jewish wisdom literature. That's really where we find James. So one bit of wisdom that we found last week had to do with trials in life, had to do with the hardships. Anybody facing hardships these days? Um, I think there's been an ongoing hardship on top of all the regular stuff of life that we have to deal with, and James has some wisdom for us. He says, trials in this life are inevitable. That's an echo of what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble, right? And so James reminds us that trials are inevitable, but they also are useful. They provide an opportunity for our faith to grow up. We grow up very quickly when we're put in trials of life. And that's what James wants to remind us. But he also wants to remind us that it's possible, it's possible to experience joy even in the midst of trials. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's the tough part, is to choose joy in the midst of the trial. Not rejoicing in the trial itself, but rejoicing is an act of worship that directs our attention to God. And so that's what James wants to do. Sometimes trials are called the furnace of affliction. And it feels like that, some of the trials that we go through. Uh, we were gathered here on Wednesday night, and it was great to gather with a group of people to share some wisdom and some insights, some stories with one another. We watched the uh, uh, film series on Right Now Media uh, with Francis Chan. And he was talking about how a lot of the language around trials in the Bible picks up the language from the smelter, from the furnace, where they refine metals. And he gave an illustration of a silversmith and the way the silversmith superheats the silver until the impurities rise to the top and then they're scraped away. It's sometimes called the dross. You heard that term? And it's scraped away and the process repeated and it's scraped away until finally the silversmith is satisfied with seeing his reflection in the silver. I thought, what an amazing picture 
of what James is saying that trials do for us. As difficult as they are, the purpose of trials is that the image of God might be revealed in us if we choose to be trained by these trials. So last week was on trials. This week there's a shift from trials to temptation. Trials are meant to purify us. Temptation is something completely different. (laughs) Temptation often happens in the midst of trials. If you think of the children of Israel wandering in the desert, that's a trial. But then they were tempted in various ways and often fell to temptation. And that's what we find ourselves in, is sometimes we fall into the trap of temptation when we're at our weakest point, when when we're in the midst of trials. So what's the wisdom here for us? Well, two things. First of all, James wants us to know this. He wants us to know the source of temptation and be really, really clear about the source of temptation. And his first statement is this. It's not God. This is really important for James. The source of temptation is not God. He's very emphatic about it. He says, God does not tempt anyone. God is not out setting traps for you. Do you understand that? That's not what testing is about. Temptation is a different thing. God is not trying to trip you up. He's not trying to create a, a reel of fails that he can display to all the angels and show how foolish you are. That's not what God does. He, he doesn't try to trap us. He's not into entrapment. God wants us to succeed in the very best of ways possible. He doesn't want us to fail. So God is not a, about tempting anyone. So then who is to blame? Who's to blame for temptations? Well, that's a very human response to a problem, isn't it? looking for someone to blame. I think we do that all the time. I think we're noticing it more and more the longer this pandemic stretches on. Who do we blame for this when it began? Who do we blame for it now when people are in hospital? Who do we blame for this and that? We're constantly casting the blame and honestly, we come by it naturally, right? As we read in the story of Genesis chapter two and three, you know we're not meant to read the Adam and Eve story just to see the origin of the human race. I think we're actually meant to read it to see ourselves. We see ourselves reflected. It's like a mirror that we're meant to hold up and say, yeah, that's me. So we don't blame Adam for it. We say, I'm Adam. You're Eve. This is who we are. And so we see that very much in the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because what happened? They ate of the forbidden fruit, and then they hid themselves, as if they could, hid themselves in the garden, So when God came down, he said, where are you guys? Where are you? And they said, we're hiding. It's like, well, that's weird. Why are you hiding? Well, because we're naked. And he said, well, what? Who told you we're naked? And they said, well, we're so full of shame. See, God doesn't introduce shame to us. We're feeling shame. That comes from a whole other source. And God said, why are you ashamed? And then the blame started, right? What did Adam say? It was the woman who you gave me, right? (laughs) Adam was like, we were doing fine, God. You and I in the garden having a good time, naming the animals. I took a nap. I woke up married. And then this happened. Typical husband, right? But then Eve, she's no better. She just says, wait a minute. Did neither of you see the snake in the garden? (laughs) And she blames the snake. And that's what we do. We blame. And sometimes when it comes down to temptation, we blame a lot of things. Oh, I was weak. I gave in again. Well, it's my parents' fault. 
It's the way they raised me. Or it's the environment that I, I grew up in. Or it's my lack of, of money that's causing me to do this. Or it's any number of things. Or maybe the devil made me do it. And we have this blame game that goes around. Well, here's the wisdom from James. And this is the revolutionary thing that should change our perspective on temptation. He says, the power of temptation isn't external. This is what he says. Temptation, the power of temptation is this. When we're dragged away by our own evil desires and enticed, temptation comes from within. That's the power of temptation. It's because of our own twisted desires. There's a word that's sometimes translated in the older translations, and the word is lust. We translate it in newer translations, desire. Desire is perhaps a better word for it because lust has a lot of negative connotations. But the word desire is fairly neutral, and it can go either way. We can have healthy desires toward people, toward our spouse, toward God, or we can have negative desires that lead us astray. And James is saying it's these negative evil desires that give a power to temptation, and that's what actually leads us away. He's actually using a couple of fishing terms here. Anybody big into fishing? Because I just have to see, because what I'm about to say might not be accurate. I just want to see how much uh, flack I'm going to get from trying to use fishing terms. I haven't fished very often. I like eating fish. I just don't like killing anything. So it's sometimes hard for me to take that extra little step. But anyway, I remember when I was a kid and teenager, and we used to go to Lac Lejeune, Anybody know where that is? Near Kamloops. And we used to go fishing up Lac Lejeune. You can get really delicious rainbow trout in Lac Lejeune. And so we were fishing there one time, and uh, we were there for the whole weekend, me and my friend and his family, and we fished for three days straight and caught nothing. Nothing. The big promise. I mean, we didn't even take food. We had to go to Kamloops to get food. We, were th we thought we'd eat the fish that we caught. Maybe some berries on there. I don't know what we were thinking, but... We'd caught no fish. Now, we realized it wasn't our fault. <laughs> Nobody else caught fish. And there's lots of theories why. We weren't using the right lures or baits or things like that. But a lot of people said there had just been a fly hatch, and the fish were not interested in what we were offering. They had no desire for what we were literally dangling right in front of their nose because we could see them in the shallows. They were there, and they had no desire for what they were offering. So they did not give in to the temptation of the lure. Here's the problem. When temptation comes our way, what gives it power is that inside we desire those things that are often wrong and bad and sinful and evil. It's because of our own desires that temptation has power to begin with. I'm not often tempted to jump out in front of a moving bus. It's just not one of my desires. It's not on my bucket list. And so that temptation doesn't cross my mind, but there's lots of others because of the desires that are within. William Barclay says it like this. Satan certainly tempts us, but the only reason temptation has a hook in us is because of our own fallen nature, which corrupts our God-given desires. We often give Satan too much credit for his tempting powers and fail to recognize that we are drawn away by our own desires. That's James's point that if we're to overcome temptation, we don't simply change the environment around us. We need to be transformed 
from the inside. We need to become a new creation in Christ. The work is internal. James, if you read through the uh, letter of James, uh, what you'll discover is that it echoes a lot of the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of the teaching of Jesus. And one of the teachings that Jesus gives is in Matthew chapter 15. He has this great debate with the Pharisees. They're all so focused on the external. And they have this debate about hand washing. My daughter, Triona, for one of her classes just yesterday had to do a hand washing video and do a voiceover to explain it. It was kind of hilarious. But, but it was a big thing for the Pharisees to have proper hand washing. And so they come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands properly? You think it was COVID times or something. But it's a big thing. And Jesus finally says to them, are you still so dull? You've got to love it when Jesus just gives it to them, right? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That's a little graphic to begin with, but that's what Jesus says. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Still wash your hands, by the way. That's a good practice. But Jesus' point is that we're not defiled from the external. It's something inside. That's always the focus of Jesus. That's the focus of James. When it comes to temptation, we need to focus on what's happening inside us in order to overcome it. The message translation says this um, in, in that passage we read. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Something to think about as we deal with temptation. So that's the first thing. The source of temptation, the power of temptation, actually lies within us. But the course of temptation is the second thing that James wants to bring up. What direction, what course does it take? What does it look like? This is what he says. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's the course that temptation takes if we give into it. Now he uses here a really graphic and tragic image. And it's an image that would be very sensitive, I think, to many of us. And some of us very recently having to deal with this. But it's the image of a stillborn child. That's what he's saying here. It's a graphic and tragic image of when temptation and when we take the temptation bait, sin is conceived. And if sin is allowed to grow, it only produces death and grief. That's the end result of sin. When we take that temptation bait, the end result is death. This is what Paul says in Romans 2. The wages of sin is death. It's not that God wants to destroy our fun. The temptation isn't just about eating chocolate cake or not. That's not what it's about. We sometimes use that language when we're talking about dessert for some reason. It's sinfully delightful. You know, those, no, that's, that's downplaying the importance of temptation. Real temptation is the temptation that takes us off of God's path and into a path that leads to grief and loss and death. That's why God doesn't want us to go there. He wants to give us life and life to the full. And so that's why it's important for us to understand how temptation works so that we might resist it. Temptation always holds out 
false promises. Do we understand that? I think we understand that logically, but we still fall for it often because of our internal desires. It promises, you know, if we just do this, this will make us happy. Or if we just do this, this will satisfy my cravings. Or if I just do this, this will cure my loneliness. Or if I just do this, this will put me in control of my life. The wages of sin is death. It actually leads in the opposite direction, away from God. And that's why James and Jesus and the Bible in general warns us to resist the evil one, to resist temptation. So here, as we read through the passage, James calls us to switch focus. God doesn't tempt us, so don't be misled, James says. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Instead of temptation to evil, what does God bring us? Good gifts. Good gifts. James says switch focus. That's the best way to deal with temptation in our lives. Look at God's good gifts. True love. True companionship. True power through serving others. These are the gifts that God brings to us and he wants us to enjoy. It's a shift in our focus. I've shared this story maybe a couple of times, maybe too many times, but it is coming up to motorcycle season. Like yesterday, I couldn't believe it. I saw like a dozen bikes on the road. I don't know how they'd deal with the gravel on the side roads and stuff. And so it was very tempting to bring the bumblebee out of storage and get her on the road again, but we didn't. But it reminded me of the time when I was taking my road test for my motorcycle. And I've told some of you the story, even though it's very, very embarrassing to me. I rode uh, motorbikes, dirt bikes when I was a kid. And so I thought, no problem. I'll go out and take this test. And I failed it not once, not twice, but three times. I failed my motorcycle test. Anybody want to ride? You can jump on the back. Totally safe. Christine knows. But the reason I failed my test became very obvious to me. There's a part of the test, actually in the slow speed test, that you're meant to weave through the cones all the way like a slalom, turn around and come all the way back. And all the way back, on the way back, I would always knock over the second to last cone and I, and I would fail the test. <laughs> That's all it took. He got a couple of chances and that was one that you'd fail. And so I was so frustrated. Finally, the examiner had mercy on me and he said, you know what your problem is? I'm like, yeah, tell me. He goes, you're looking at the cones. I'm like, yes, of course I'm looking at the cones. He goes, no, look at the gap between the cones. Because where you look at, there's where, that's where you'll go. And it changed everything for me when it came to motorcycling, but also when it comes to faith. I think sometimes uh, we end up having courses to talk about lust among men. And we focus on lust so much, I think we end up lusting more. I don't know. Sometimes we end up focusing on the sin so much. James says, get your eyes off the sin. Get your eyes off the temptation. Look at God's good gifts. Because when we focus on that, our heart will be pulled in that direction. That's a big part of how we deal with temptation in our lives. So what do we do with temptation? James doesn't give a full explanation. He just gives us these seeds of wisdom about the source and the course of temptation. But the rest of the Bible, of course, fills this out for us. Jesus himself was tempted. So we know that temptation was not sin in itself. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. But 1 Corinthians 10 gives us some hope. 
says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You're not a bad person because you face temptation. It is common to all of us. But God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Look for the way out and pray that God will give us the strength to take the path out. And I think the path out is whatever is pure, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, think on those things and move in that direction. What if we do fall into temptation? What if we do give in to these desires that we have that are not of God? Well, then we still have hope. That's the beauty of it all. That's the gospel for us, right? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's still a promise, even if we fall. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your love for us is constant and unconditional. That there's nothing that we can do today to make, us, make you love us more. Thank you for that. Thank you that even in our darkest moments, you love us. But thank you that you also give us good gifts to remind us that you are for us and not against us. Father, help us to receive those good gifts today, whatever they are, whatever form they take, even in the midst of our trials and our temptations, to know that you are with us and that you love us still is what really matters. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name.